Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, question. How many of you are the oldest sibling in your family? Okay. And how many of you are a younger or the youngest sibling in your family? Okay. And then how many of you are an only child? All right. You guys are excited. So I say all that because there is this dynamic at work that older siblings like myself, we enjoy Younger siblings are tormented by, and then if you're an only child, you just enjoy it, but you don't get to torment your younger, any siblings with it. And I'll explain. I'm uh, five years older than my sister, Kyla. And so when I was 11, is Kyla here? Where are you, Kyla? She's back here. She just doesn't want to admit it. Anyhow, so when I was 11 and Kyla was six, our family had this exercise bike in our basement. And this was before the digital era of everything. And so this speedometer on this thing had the needle and it had a top speed that it would go up to a 45 miles per hour. And so Kyla and I used to make a game out of pedaling as hard as we could and then seeing how high we could get the speed on that thing. And so at 11 years old, I could get this thing to like 20, 25 miles per hour. And I was really proud of myself. And Kyla at six years old could get it to like six miles an hour. And so as an older sibling, it was my duty to make fun of her until she cried, and I, I did. And so, um, you know, we still go back and forth. But one day, I had just made so much fun of her that that was it for her. And so she said, you know what, Nathan, you're not that cool because you can't even get it to the top speed. And that is a challenge for an 11-year-old boy that uh, you don't ignore. And so that night after she fell asleep, I took the case off of the speedometer and I moved the needle to the 45 and I taped it down and then super glued it and let it dry overnight. And then the next morning, <laughs> I get up and I'm pedaling as hard as I can. And I'm like, Kyla, you got to see this. And she runs in. She's like, what happened? I was like, I'm going 45 miles an hour and I'm barely pedaling. And, and she's like, wow, you're so strong. And I'm like, I know. It's awesome. <laughs> And suddenly we start hearing this clicking coming from the speedometer. And I realized looking back that I think I shattered all the little gears in this speedometer thing. And at the time I didn't realize it, but Kyla is like, you're so dead. Mom and dad are going to be so mad at you. Now as an older sibling, some people would panic, but older siblings don't panic when a younger sibling says something like that. Because you know that, that the whole reason that God made younger siblings was what? To take the heat for what you did. So I was like, I'm not in trouble. You're in trouble because you're going to tell mom and dad that you broke the exercise bike. And she's like, no, I'm not. I was like, yes, you are. And she's like, no, I'm not. So I went to my room because older siblings, we always have a plan, don't we? And uh, I grabbed this bag and I said, you're telling mom and dad that you broke the exercise bike. She's like, no, I'm not. And I was like, well, then you're not going to see this for a long time. <laughs> Favorite teddy bear. And this is the real deal. Kyla, you didn't think I had this, did you? <laughs> yeah, so I got it. And you're not going to see this for a while if you don't tell mom and dad. And she's like, give him back. And I'm like, no, not till you tell mom and dad. So um, <laughs> she goes to her room. And she comes back out a few minutes later and she's like, you know what? I'm not telling mom and dad. And I was like, yes, you are. And she's like, no, I'm not because I have other teddy bears I can play with. I have my second favorite bear, Seattle. And I was like, you had your second favorite bear, Seattle, <laughs> right? You are not going to see Seattle or Snuggles ever again if you don't tell mom and dad that you broke the exercise bike. So 
she tells mom and dad that she broke the exercise bike. And here's the thing. We both got in trouble. But as an older sibling, I walk away thinking I win because she got in more trouble than I got in. And there's this dynamic at work there that at any given time, I'm watching out for who? Me. Yeah, I am a self-centered person. And before you think I'm a horrible person, guess what? I would say the exact same thing about you, that you are a self-centered person. And that sounds bad, but that is something that is in us from very early on. Our five-year-old daughter, Lainey, she um, was in preschool last year. And so she would go to preschool two mornings a week, Tuesday, Thursday. Pretty nice. Well, this year she started kindergarten. And so she goes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning for half a day. And so the first week of kindergarten this year, she goes Monday morning and then she goes Tuesday morning. And on Tuesday night, she's like, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to school tomorrow. <laughs> and we're like, yes, you are. This is no longer, it wasn't optional before, but it's really not optional now. But see, to Lainey, it, it, she doesn't care that that's a nice schedule to us because to her, her world, her well-being, her interests have been affected. And so to her, it's like, well, mom, dad, you don't have to do it, but I have to do this every single day, which would be great for all of us, right? Kindergarten, five mornings a week, sounds good. But that illustrates something about all of us, that when it comes down to it, we're concerned about our world, our well-being, our interests. In fact, when you wake up every morning, you know what? It's kind of hard to think about anything else, isn't it? Because you think, what am I going to eat? What do I have to do today? And then this doesn't help. You've got these systems inside of you that are meant, and, and you don't even choose to control these things. They just happen that are meant to take care of you and your world. Because you have this thing called fight or flight, this fight or flight mechanism. And anytime a threat is present in your life, what happens? You either fight it or you run from it. You take flight. And then if you paid attention in science class, you've got this thing called homeostasis going on, right? And that just keeps everything in balance in our world inside, doesn't it? And if things get out of whack, homeostasis fights to bring it all back to normal. And so we have that going on. And then in fact, in 1943, there was this psychologist named Abraham Maslow. And what Maslow did is he came up, you're gonna see it on the screen here, he came up with this hierarchy of human needs. And what he was saying with this hierarchy of human needs is that at a very basic level, like survival, and can we put that on the screen? It, like survival, food, water, shelter, at that level, all the way up to a more advanced level, like what we become and who we are, that we are constantly working with our own self-preservation at the center of everything. And so you see all the things that we do consciously to look after our world and our well-being and ourselves. And then you see the things that we unconsciously do. You know, the things that happen like fight or flight, homeostasis, all that stuff. And isn't it true that you can get to the end of the day and you could have taken great care of yourself all day and looked after your world perfectly. But at the end of the day, isn't it true that you can still think, isn't there more? to life than taking care of myself? Isn't there more? See, if that wasn't true, then you know what? You could walk down the street and you could have this realization that homeostasis is just is going on and I'm fulfilled because homeostasis is happening inside of me right now. 
But you don't do that, do you? Nobody does that. Or you could get done with a meal and have a full stomach and feel like you found your life's purpose. But that doesn't happen. Well, for some of you, that happens, okay? (laughs) But no, we don't do that. And then when you look at our achievements and the success that we have in life, that doesn't even do it. In fact, I'm about to say a name that is a swear word to a lot of people in this audience. Ready? Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Some of you are really mad right now. Um, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes a few years ago. And he said, you know, I look at the Super Bowl championships that I have. I look at the MVPs. I look at the Pro Bowls that I've been part of. And some people would say, wow, that guy has reached the goal. He's done it. And he said, but I still wonder, is this it? Is this all it was cracked up to be? Is there more? Because see, if our success and our achievements were it, and if a full stomach was it, and if love and money were it, and homeostasis and fight or flight and all these things that work together to take care of our our well-being, if those were it, then why when we have those things do we wonder if that's it? Why do we feel like those things are not it? Well, I think it's something deeper inside of all of us that is saying, perhaps there's more. Perhaps there's more than my own self-preservation. Perhaps there's more than my world, my well-being, and my interests. And we would never admit that those are the most important things, but we live that way, don't we? And then, even if we realize those are the most important things, well, or I'm sorry, even if we realize that those are not the most important things, we still don't know how to get there, how to get to what is more, to that thing inside of us, that there is more. And so the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the book of Esther. And I believe that there's this one moment in Esther's life that we're going to look at this morning, this one moment in her life that God uses to answer that question in her life, and not only in her life, but also in our lives. And so we're going to get to that in just a minute, but first, a little bit of background, okay? And it sounds like a big soap opera because it it is, actually. Um, 605 BC, you have the Jewish people are living in Jerusalem, and the Babylonians show up, and they basically invade Jerusalem, and over a span of almost 20 years, they destroy the temple, and they destroy the city, and they carry the Jewish people into exile. And so the Jewish people are living under Babylonian rule for almost 70 years until the Persians show up. And when the Persians show up, they have this king named King Cyrus, and he issues this decree. And he says, the Jewish people can return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. And so some of the Jewish people actually end up staying, and some go back to Jerusalem. Well, a few decades go by, and this, a new king comes to power among the Persians. His name's King Xerxes. And he's got this wife named Queen Vashti, and she basically upsets him, and he has her thrown out. And this, in this crazy turn of events, this exiled Jewish woman named Esther becomes the queen of Persia without any of the Persians knowing that she is a Jewish woman. Now, meanwhile, she's got this family nem- member named Mordecai. And Mordecai, he's basically her guardian. He does something that he upsets one of the king's right-hand men. And it's a guy named Haman. And so Haman says, you know what, Mordecai, you've made me so upset that I am going to have not just you destroyed, but your people destroyed. The Jewish people need to be destroyed. And so Mordecai gets the king to sign off on this. And I'm sorry, Haman gets the king to sign off on this. And Mordecai is looking at this going, what are we going to do? 
And he looks around and he realizes that Esther is in a position to do something about this situation. And so he appeals to her. He sends this messenger to Esther. He says, you have got to do something. And that is where we're going to pick up with the story right now. We are in Esther chapter 4. This is verse 10. Then she instructed him, Mordecai's messenger, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Okay, let's stop there for just a second, because if you're like me, you're reading this and you're thinking, isn't this just like the most selfish thing that anybody has said in the history of like ever? I mean, Esther, you were living the exiled life. Now you are living the royal life. So you get, you get like grapes fed to you all day and somebody fans you and you get to ride around on a chariot and I don't know if that's what queens do, but just something like that probably, right? You get to do all this stuff, but your people are about to be destroyed. Your friends, your family, they're all about to be destroyed and you are thinking about you. Now, let's come back to us for a second. Isn't it interesting how when my world and my well-being and my interests have been affected, that I have a hard time stepping out of my world, don't I, and into yours to come alongside you? It's not that I don't care what's happening in your world. I'm trying to take care of what's happening in my world. So this is why you guys, when you're late for work, in your world, you're late for work. But there can be somebody broken down on the side of the road and you can just go right by them. It's not that you don't care. You're like, oh, that stinks. I hope they get help. But I'm late. My well-being, my world hinges on me being on time. This is why when my wife says, Nathan, True, that's our, our uh, youngest daughter. She's almost two. Nathan, True needs her diaper changed. I mean, it really smells like it. She needs her diaper changed. If that happens on a Sunday, that takes me a few minutes because I'm like, honey, my fantasy team right now. Like, I've got to watch what happens and I got to see these meaningless statistics that they put up so True can sit in it for a few minutes, okay? <laughs> right, because we're oblivious to what's going on outside of us. This is why wives, when you are in the middle of giving birth to a child, nobody else's world matters, does it? No, because you are in so much pain. You've got your own thing going on. But you say these things to your husband that just like hurt his feelings. And you're only saying it out of your own pain, we know, but it really hurts, okay? <laughs> or husbands. That's why you can be totally oblivious to the pain your wife is in in the middle of childbirth. You know, I mean, you care that she's in pain and you're aware of it, but you have your own pain going on, don't you? Because she's like squeezing that hand with the ring on it. How many of you have had your hand squeezed when your ring is on it? Yeah, and what happens? Those fingers next to the ring, it hurts. And you're caught up in your own pain, in your own world, and you're sure that there is no pain greater than the pain she's inflicting on you right now. But what's ironic is right next to you is the greatest pain you could ever experience. I mean, what she's going through, not her, sorry. Um, 
Sorry, honey. Um, and that's why when the nurse comes in, you think her question is about you. She says, do you guys need the epidural? And you're like, yeah, in this finger right here. Oh, she gets the epidural, right? Because we get caught up in my world, my well-being, my interests, what's happening in my world right now. And again, it's not that I don't care what's happening in your world. I'm trying to take care of what's happening in my world. And so maybe we can understand where, where Esther is at. It's not that she doesn't care that the Jewish people are about to lose their lives. Esther's dealing with the fact that she could lose her life because her world has been affected. And when you look at that dynamic going on with Esther and you see the dynamic that goes on with us and all the things we do to take care of our world, well, you start to, to realize that it is a miracle that any of us cares about anybody else at all, isn't it? And that is what makes what Mordecai says next so important. Listen to what he says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai is saying, look, Esther, don't think that staying in your world, being concerned about your well-being is the answer to this. Because help is coming. And the question is, do you want to be part of it? Or do you want to stand back and watch somebody else be part of it because you wanted to stay in your world? And then he asks this question that changes everything. Look what he asks. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. What Mordecai just asked Esther carried so much power, but I think the best display of its power is in what you see Esther do next. Look at the next verse, what she does. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids or my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Okay, question. How, how does Esther go from, look, if I do what you're asking, Mordecai, I could die. How does she go from that to, you know what, I'll go. And if I die, I die. I mean, for us, this was three paragraphs. How does that change happen in three paragraphs? For them, it was a couple days. How does a 180 like that occur in just a few days. I think that Mordecai, with the question he asked Esther, presented this idea that hit Esther on a level far deeper than her own world and her own well-being. And it hits you and me on a level far deeper than our own world, our own well-being, and our own interests. He presents this idea that if you don't remember anything else this morning, remember this idea because it has the power to change everything. What if the point of where God has you is to do something that is beyond you? What if the point of where God has you right now is to do something so beyond you? And I ask you to remember that because 
There is a reason for who you are, there's a reason for when you are, and there is a reason for where you are right now. And it is greater than you. But we forget that, don't we? We, all we see is where God has us right here, and we don't like this, and he's not doing this, and I wish he would do this, and why is this happening? And we think it's all about us right where we are. But see, if we wanna experience this, if we wanna experience what God wants to do that's beyond us, we have to get outside of this. And so this week, what I'm asking all of us to do is to try something. And that thing is to get outside of ourselves. To get outside ourselves and to walk around with one question in mind. What if the point of where God has me is to do something that's beyond me? Beyond what I think should happen or what I think I can do? What if the point of you having the job you have is because God looked at how he made you and he realized, or he knows, that you can reach your coworkers far better than anybody else can. And you may not feel like that, but God knows that. And so maybe this week you're gonna have a conversation that goes deeper than the NFL or what I like or who I hate or what's going on at work or my boss or whatever. Maybe you have a conversation that goes further than that for the first time ever with a coworker. What if the reason you live where you live is because God put you in that neighborhood, on that street, in that house, to do something in the lives of your neighbors? You know, teenagers, youth, junior highers, high schoolers, what if the reason you sit in the third row in the fourth seat from the left is because God knows that you can reach the person in front of you, the person behind you, and the people to the sides of you better than anybody else can? What if, what if, instead of just being in class with them this week, well, what if you had lunch with them this week? Parents, what if the reason that you are a parent, grandparents too, what if the reason you're in that position is for God to do more than just you provide needs for your family, which are so important, but what if he wants to do more? What if he wants a relationship? that goes beyond your kids coming home and you say, how was your day? What happened? And they're like, good, nothing. And they run off. But what if you found out what actually happened in their lives that day? In youth, what if you actually shared that with your parents instead of running off? What are we gonna do this week to get outside of ourselves? Today, I'm so excited. We're gonna watch, I think it's 23 people be baptized. And they're making a statement that I am getting outside of me because I want to see what God has that is beyond me. That my life is no longer about my world, my well-being, my interests. And so for them, it's baptism. And I'm so excited to watch that in just a few minutes here and be part of that. But what are we going to do this week? And what I would ask is that by Friday, we're going to put an email address up here on the screen, info at westbulls.com. By Friday, will you just take three or five or ten minutes, we're around email all week long, will you just take a little bit of time and share with us what you did this week to get outside of you? And maybe what happened as a result, if, if you have the privilege of getting to see what happened as a result. 
Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, what if, what if it doesn't work? What if it blows up in my face? What if it's painful? What if I fail? Can I ask you a question? What if to you it's full of pain, but to your heavenly father, it's full of potential? What if to you it's full of fear and failure, but to your heavenly father, it's full of his faithfulness? Because you think you're at your job for a paycheck, and you think that you're in the family you're in so that your parents can just take care of you. And you think you're in class just to get good grades and learn. And yeah, that's all part of it. But God's saying, maybe there's more. What if I have you there so that I can do something more than you? Now, this isn't just a question that Esther was faced with. I believe it was with this question in mind that Jesus went to 12 men who were caught up in their own worlds, their own well-being, all of that, their own self-preservation. And he said, drop everything and follow me. Drop it all and follow me. Because I have something that is far greater than you. And they accomplished something far greater than them, didn't they? God used these 12 men in what Jesus had put into their lives and who he was in their lives to start this movement that we are participating in right now, the church. And it's a movement that probably should have been squashed throughout the centuries. There are wars that probably should have crushed it. And yet here we are. Because 12 men had this realization that their lives were about more than just taking care of me. And God did something that was so beyond them. Now, that is not just a question for Esther. It's not just for the disciples. But that is a question for you and for me. What if the point of where God has you is to do something that is beyond you? Can you imagine what would happen if we all walked around with that question? Well, teenagers, youth, you would realize that maybe God wants to use you in your parents' life. He wants to use you in their lives. And I know that's backwards, upside-down thinking because we think, well, they are supposed to take care of me because they're my parents, and that's true. But what if God wants to do something more than that? And parents, what if you walked around with this question in your mind and I walked around with this question in my mind? Grandparents as well. You know what I think would happen? I think we'd realize that we are not just providing needs for our children, like food and a place to sleep and shelter and all that stuff. But I think we'd realize that we are raising the next generation of husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. And sure, you could depend on them reading a book one day and learning how to do that. But that is never going to speak as loudly is what they can learn living under your roof. Because God has more than what we think our position is about. What if the point of your job or joblessness is a relationship with people so that God can work through that? The possibilities really are incredible, but it starts with walking around with one question in mind. What if the point of where God has me is to do something that's beyond me. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you so much that you are a God who you look down, you look at us, and you see how much we live for our own selves and our own world and our own well-being and our interests. Thank you that you are a God who has had tremendous grace on us. You are a God who uses us in the place we're in. And even when we think we've messed everything up, you say, well, I, I have a reason that you're there and it's beyond you. And so, Father, this week as we go forth into our jobs and into our homes and into school and wherever we go during the week, will you show us how you want to use us, show us how to get outside of ourselves. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank <clears throat> you.